Hello, everyone. Welcome to Seek, Go, Create. This is your host, Tim Winders, coming to you from the passenger seat of Theo, our 39-foot motor coach, parked now just outside of Zion National Park. This is where we redefine success in leadership, business, and ministry. And let me tell you, today, we're going to be talking about all those things. We're going to be talking about work, business, calling, probably got some scriptures that we're going to look at. We're going to be talking about just so many things with the world of work with the guest that we have. Before I get to the guest, let me just do a quick mention of a few things. Many people know, but some people do not know that on our website, seekgocreate.com, we have extensive notes for each episode. And I encourage you, if you have not gone and checked out the notes at seekgocreate.com, go do that. We actually have someone that takes the transcript of what we do on the episode like today, and they take it and they put it in an outline form. It's not, it's not a transcript, it's an outline. And so you could read through real quickly. You could look at some topics that interest you. It also has timestamps. So you could jump back to the podcast or to YouTube and, and listen in. And then any resources that we mentioned, any books, and we're going to be talking about books today. Our guest has a great book that's out. Or anything else we bring up, we attempt to put links so that you can link directly to that from that episode page. So if you have not checked it out, go to seekgocreate.com, click on episodes, and you can go to any of the 170-something episodes we've done and get much more detail. So make sure that you do that. Today, we have Dr. Michaela, Michaela O'Donnell. Sorry about that. She's the author of Make Work Matter, which I have almost finished reading. I did like a speed read over the last two days. Excellent book. We're going to be discussing that. And it is subtitled, Your Guide to Meaningful Work in a Changing world. There's a lot there. That's a mouthful. She is also the executive director of the Max Dupree Center for Leadership, where she oversees the center's vision, strategy, program, and team, all with the goal of helping leaders like you, like us, like all of us that are listening in here at Seek, Go, Create, respond faithfully to God in all seasons of life and leadership. Michaela, welcome to Seek, Go, Create. Hi, Tim. It's good to be with you. Great to be here. So, Michaela, we're either going to have fun or or go at it right here out of the gate because Can't wait. I ask I ask a question. It's the first question I ask, and uh, I'll ask it in just a moment. But in reading your book, Night Before Last, I saw where you said that this question, when you were having it with a friend of yours, was, I'll use the word that I think you used, which was shame bait question. But Having set that groundwork, people are either really uncomfortable listening in now or they're excited about what happens next. I like to ask people after I do the intro, if we just bump into each other and I ask you the question, what do you do? What do you typically tell people? And then after you answer, we'll talk about why it might be shame bait. Is that okay? Yeah, I love it. And let me tell you, Tim, I haven't asked anybody this question since like two days ago. So we're in good company, even though I have complicated feelings about it. Um, You know, my answer to this question has changed over the years. But right now, if you to ask me, what do I do? I say, okay, I lead, I create, and I strategize. This is kind of how I'm wired. And I currently do that as the executive director of a leadership center. And at the heart of it, my work is to really to help people think deeply about their work. Mm, very good. All right. Excellent answer. Now, let's go ahead and address why that is 
possibly a tough question, a shameful question, or a question that we shouldn't be asking as much? Because I get it. I think this is going to help our conversation get started well. But why do you say we need to be cautious with that question? Yeah. So speaking straight to myself, to you, to anybody else, the what do we do question is the default, right? And it's the kind of the way that for better or worse, we make sense of ourselves. I mean, it's the question in a very different way. We ask little kids, but note the way we ask little kids the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then all it's a B. And then when we come around later in life and it's like, what do you do? We don't, we don't actually say, who are you? What about that being? How is that played out? And sometimes people are really excited to answer and they feel like they've got, they've got words, even just like now, like, I feel like I kind of understand that I'm in a good place. And so therefore I want to talk about that with you, but many other times it's much more complicated than that. And it's not exactly how people want to make their first impression or introduce themselves. They don't even know how to sum up all of what they do because some of it's paid or unpaid and some of it feels like work and other parts feel like other things in their life. And so I'm on a one woman mission to help us think of more creative, like one line intros to get to the same sort of thing. Right. So sometimes I'll, I'll say like, like, what do you do for work? Um, But other times I'll, I'll start with the so what are you up to these days? Um, tell me about yourself. I mean, I'll start with these broad questions and Tim, it's very interesting. You can tell they're newer for people. People are like, oh, and they kind of go in, but at least a lot of, of generative discussions. But like I said, I haven't asked anybody the, what do you do question since like two days ago. So um, we're in good company there. So good. We can continue the conversation we can and continue. we're not going to go at each oh, Okay, we're good. I'm sure the the listeners going, oh my gosh, it's getting tense right out of the gate. No, no, no. Um, I mean, don't you think at the root, it's it's an identity issue that we have? And I'll, I'll, I'll follow up with this as you're thinking, you know, you know, there's light, fluffy questions we could ask. Like I could say, how's the weather where you're at in Los Angeles? How, to me, that's a that's kind of one of these very, very surface level and I've altered my question at times to say, what business are you in? Or what are you excited about? Or something like that. But don't you think, don't you think that it's an identity question? And, it's, and because we have so many identity issues, that's why it's tough to ask that, maybe? Yeah, and, and that's why it's tough to answer. I, I think it's absolutely an identity thing. And um, it... So some of my favorite work in the last couple of years has been from a series of writers who are more like journalists. And one thing they're reporting on is a phenomenon they're calling workism. I don't know if this, if you've heard of this phrase, Tim, but workism. And the idea is basically that as a, as a culture, as a Western culture, as a, an American culture, we worship work. Um, we worship it for, um, it's a very strong word, right? Worship, because we usually reserve that word, especially as people of faith for very particular um, frames and sentences. But their argument is that you can tell we worship work by the ways in which we overly attach our identity to it. We name it as the place that we're going to get all the significance, the spiritual significance, the understanding ourselves, certainly the pragmatics, money and flexibility and and so on and so forth. So when work is going well, our sense of identity is, again, we've got that smile on our face, but when it's not, or there's parts that feel like they conflict with 
other identities, to use your plural sense of the word, it just starts to get more complicated. And I, I don't know that I would meet anybody who says, I, yeah, I worship work, like for sure. That's what I do. Like, I don't know if that's, but, it, but once you start unpacking that and realizing, oh, actually it's where we get a lot of our sense of significance. And it's certainly how we make sense of each other and ourselves in this identity framework. I think then we're starting to have some tougher conversations. And I think uh, this is what was fascinating me in reading the book that I did and doing some research on you is that I, I enjoy, I mean, we can probably tell from just, you know, a few minutes in, we're already here talking about identity and things like that. I do not mind light, fluffy conversations, but I get bored really, really quickly. I love to really find out what the root, um, truthfully, I really like to find out what people were created for. What, what are they mm -hmm. here for? And sometimes it's tough to do that with light, fluffy. We kind of have to go to some of these deeper questions. And so um, gosh, there's so many things you brought up that I'm, I've got my mind bouncing in about three or four different ways right now. Let me go ahead and address this one first. Is it that we are so uh, enamored, addicted or whatever to work? Or is it also related to the materialism that we have in our modern culture and, and the money part and things like that? Or is all that kind of tied in together? Because I think back of myself, and I mean, I've been hard charger and all, and a lot of everybody listening in knows my story, I'm sure. But then I also think maybe I was just going after the results of what I thought that work would lead to. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I join you. So I, I like work. So I'm not, so here I am talking about the complexities and the difficulties with our relationship to work, hmm. but I actually like to work. I love the feeling. I, mean, I grew up in the Midwest, Irish Catholic family, blue collar family in many ways. Work ethic is important. Seeing the fruit of your labor matters. Um, though I grew up in a city, we were surrounded by farm and agrarian communities. Like there's rhythm and there's harvest and there's um, winter and those things just really, they matter. And so I, I love work. Um, I, I really am reticent to say, oh, we are just work addicts. We are just this, this, this. I think that this is like, this is very systemic. This is very like widespread. And so again, I, like I, so now we're talking economics. I would consider myself a capitalist. I, I'm happy to admit that where I have more difficulties are under um, some of the outputs or the fruits of system that says more is always better. Bigger profits are always the aim more, 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 which trickles into our individual lives as we are the sum of our accomplishments. The more we check off in a day is better and let's go hard and fast because that is how we will judge this whole work thing as being good. And so in that, I think we can become, to use your word, addicted or enamored by that cycle, that hustle cycle, that the, even just the dopamine and the, I, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I won't pretend to be, but what happens in our chemistry when we achieve and go back and when we're connected and disconnected, so I think we are part as individuals of a much bigger system that is moving very fast. The last thing I'll say here, Tim, is it's only getting faster. 
as the, as a globalized world starts to feel closer and closer, think about the amount of access of information you, the amount of information you have access to on a daily basis. You know, even you open this up and you're talking literally to people around the world. And that's a really beautiful, wonderful thing. And it brings front and center the fact that so much of our world is accelerating. How do we be people who remain, um, and now this is where my theology comes in, remain tethered and remain in Christ amidst all of that movement? So I think we're, I think we're naturally connected to our system here, Tim. Yeah, so then our, <laughs> so this is where I get a little bit philosophical, maybe, maybe not, just so you know, I'm an engineer by training. So some of this stuff is just me stretching myself when I get into a spiritual conversation or bigger picture, but is the system, it's kind of like, does art imitate life or does life imitate art? Is the system a result of what we've created or has the system been created to keep us away from the way we really need to function and be? Uh, you know, I could use the good versus evil, the God versus not God. Say, I could use all those arguments. So, and, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll layer it with one more question. You could tell I love to kind of think about these things. Is it, I've traveled around the world. I'm sure you have too. We travel full time. My wife and I have been traveling since 2013. Lived in Australia, New Zealand, things like that. And I think that America seems to be the ones that have created this uh, system, if you want to, if we can say that. Now, there may be roots of it. You do a great job in the book of going, going over the history of church and things like that, and I think that's part of your training and all that. But it seems as if we've developed this in America. We, we obviously were very successful in World War II with all the productivity and the hard work we did. And now we have spread it out everywhere. But we still do it, the busy, better than anyone else. What, hmm. what have we, anyway, what, what are your thoughts on that? Just respond. I mean, is this an American thing and we're spreading this around? Is it something that's just systemic with first world culture? Or what? Or and it, listen, it is a okay for you to say, Tim, you're way off track here. Okay, you can definitely do that. Oh, I love all the the musings and the questions um, that you just raised. I'll, I'll say one thing, and then I'll get to your first question and your second. So we're I work at the Dupree Center for Leadership, which you mentioned, and we're currently doing a new study, and it's all about what is like health and faithfulness and fruitfulness actually look like in industries far and wide, not just in the church. And we finished, actually, I think literally at the time of this recording, somebody else is finishing our 18th focus group. And one of the early commonalities that I am noticing is that some people come into these groups and, and into life and they've got all the answers. They're very neat and tidy and they've got frameworks and they're well-developed and I'm like taking notes and that's beautiful. And there's a whole other group of people that seem to have all the questions and not in a way that they're naive and they haven't been trained, but they just, they're wrestling. They've got tension and, you know, they're kind of working it out with fear and trembling, if you will. And over and over and over again, I find myself wanting to hang out with the people with the questions. Um, it's just so your questions, I think, are good ones. Um, and even if I don't have all the answers, uh, I'm happy to uh, wonder with you. On the first one, are we creating it? Are we? Is chicken or egg, right? Good or evil? Like, what? Who? What is all this about? I don't know. 
I mean, I think it's, I think it's, that is, I don't know. And I think that we as individuals, a part, in, a part of all of it, certainly think that the evolution of how people have come to be, but this is also where I go back to like the book of Exodus and think about when God is delivering the enslaved people out of Egypt and into the promised land and paints this very stark picture actually around work of what the kingdom of God looks like versus the kingdom of Pharaoh. And in the kingdom of Pharaoh, it's exploitive and it um, there's coercion and there's, you never stop. It's just, you know, it's kind of a scarcity mindset. So therefore we're driven by anxiety, mm. the kingdom of God, it's a trust in abundance and pausing to stop and to connect and to be with God, not just as individuals, but as, you know, a group of people, right? The Sabbath is for everybody. And I think that we are people that continue as, as people of faith, we're always living in multiple kingdoms and, we are, our, what is our work here is to join in the mission of God and be aligned with the kingdom of God, even though every day we're here in these multiple kingdoms and there's just a bunch of wrestling in there. And I think that's holy and worth doing. So that's that. Is this particularly American problem? I think I'm with you. I think I might write it down that we're the best at busy. I don't know that this is exclusively an American issue at this point, but I certainly think about how America was started, about how we leverage and exploited um, labor and work and bodies for the sake of um, new empires and new dreams and um, then World War II, right? And this, we won mentality and that then we're the leader of the free world to use a phrase that is used a lot here. And I think that all of that has great benefit and shadow side. And I don't, like, I'm not a historian. I'm not a historian. I'm not a person of American history. So I don't want to go much further than to join you and say, yeah, like, I think we've got our own particular issues here, even though I don't know at this point if they're the root of them is exclusive to us. Right, right. Tell one thing that I, I just thought of that I should have done earlier, <laughs> Michaela, Dr. Michaela, I, I need to add in, G give your... This is going to sound weird because it, to me, this is a question right up there with what do you do? It's like, what are your credentials? What's your title? Mm, yeah. How did they fit together? Because then it, yeah. I think that's where a lot of people, it's fascinating. This kind of goes back to the earlier question. I've kind of gotten to where I asked some different questions, but many people, when they're asked what they do, they give a title. Yeah. And, and I think we might've glazed over it a little bit, but give just a little bit of your title and the background that led into it because you're working in leadership you've written this great book we're talking about it we're already talking about it we haven't really mentioned it much but we'll talk about it more later but uh talk just a little bit about who dr michaela o'donnell is for the for the sake of because I, th there's actually a few more questions that i'm going to tie into that so who are you yeah great question so who is this woman talking to us who is michaela um you know, I, th I think it's important to name that I'm the product of my Irish Catholic Midwest family. If you look at the patterns of what we do for work in our big Irish Catholic family, there's two things that, that come to the top. We're teachers and we're entrepreneurs uh, over and over. That's like what we do. And so it makes sense that I have that like running in my veins and that I am in a sense, part teacher and part entrepreneur. My husband and I uh, met in seminary. We went to Fuller Theological Seminary, where I um, cannot believe, but I work these days. 
Uh, I can't believe I'm still here or here again, however you want to say it, but it's it's God's uh, gift and irony in my life. We met in seminary, and then after seminary, we graduated in the middle of the housing crisis and the 08 to 11 or to 2011 recession. So we were seminary grads without any possibilities, and nobody was hired in nonprofit sphere. It just was like a no go. So I fell back on those family instincts, and my husband and I started a business. Our business is a, a creative agency, branding, video. We can my husband continues to run that. We've served, we've we've gotten to work with some really cool clients, people who are um, small mom and pop nonprofits to uh, Google, Netflix, World Vision. I mean, just the gambit. It's it's been. We help people tell their story. We help people um, create assets to help them communicate with their people. Several years into that. I went back to do a PhD in what's called practical theology. So a practical theologians, if biblical theologians are like, what does the Bible say? Historical theologians are like, what's happened in history? Systematic theologians, what are the big doctrines of the faith and how do they play out? Practical theologians want to know what's going on right now and what does all the rest of that stuff have to say to it? So we start with right now questions. So for my um, dissertation work, I took up the question of work in a changing world. I'm like, this is happening. And what, what does the faith have to say to this? That through a series of events and different pieces of work that led me to um, the Dupree Center for Leadership at Fuller Seminary. The Dupree Center for Leadership is named after Max Dupree, longtime CEO of Herman Miller, office furniture company. I'm sitting, those of you who are looking at video, I'm sitting in an Aaron chair right now. Um, also the chairman of the board at Fuller Seminary for many years. I didn't get to meet Max, he passed before my time. But when people describe him, I get this image of a person who was who he was wherever he was. He lived a seamless, integrated life, whether he was with his grandkids, as you know, operating as CEO, sitting down with someone one-on-one. -on -one. And that is the work that we try to do at the Dupree Center. We try to help leaders across industries respond to God, live faithfully, and live the seamless life. The last thing I'll say is the book I just wrote, Make Work Matter, is is that stuff is helping people try to do that very same stuff so that's my those are my official kind of what do you do and how did you get here answers sure and i like official that's good we'll mm -hmm. dig in a little bit more on things i love what you said about about herman miller and that's cool i i i i don't think i knew the origins of the dupree leadership center there because the way you described him was the opposite of being a hypocrite in my eyes. It was the total opposite of what Jesus railed against in the Gospels. I mean, if we look at, there, I think there are a lot of people that try to talk real tough and say that Jesus did it. And I go, you gotta look at who Jesus was talking to then. He was addressing the religious hypocrites that were taking advantage of the masses and the population and things like that. And I love when I hear leaders described as to, to look at the negative, not hypocrites. Is that, is that sound correct? Oh, it's right on. And I think the, the layer I'd want to add to that one thing that I've learned a lot about Max that is continues to be ahead of his time and very relevant today is that where you see all this show up is how the people that you work with, the people that work for you, people that listen in on your podcast, like, how do these things show up in their lives? And that that's actually a reflection on this integration in your life as a leader. So yeah, not, 
not living compartmentalized, hypocritical, I'm going to go be a hard-nosed boss and think about the bottom line at the cost of everybody on Monday and put my hands up and worship God on a Sunday is that actually seeing work and in his case, his business and the products they make as integral to the mission of God, not incidental as part of this redeeming, you know, vision of what might be not this thing alongside that then can just funnel money back into it. Yeah, I like that. I think I actually called him Herman. Sorry, it was Max, and he was over Herman Miller. So thanks for yeah, yeah, of that's good there. So what's interesting earlier? I'm going to circle back to something we talked about that um, is kind of me opening myself up a little bit. You talked about how you interact with a couple of groups, and uh, some of those are the people that seem to have all the answers, and some of those are the people that have the questions. Oddly enough. I probably have gone through both of those phases in my life. Maybe we all do to some extent. Prior to 08, you mentioned 08 being significant for you. Um, I'm a grandfather and all now, and we've done a lot of cool stuff, but we've gone through a lot of interesting things also. In 08, we had three companies that were doing extremely well. They were holding a lot of assets, teaching, coaching, training nationwide, and some lead generation. They were all in the real estate industry. I don't have to tell you the rest of that story. We were... Uh, basically homeless a few years later. But here's the beauty of that. And, and you mentioned earlier, you're reading, you, you were talking about Exodus. I'm actually in the middle of Exodus now as I'm doing a read mm. through the Bible. And Moses is a fascinating story. Just finished up Genesis with, with Joseph. And interestingly enough, I probably was one of these guys that you, yeah, you may have wanted to talk to me prior to 08, but I was probably one that had a lot of answers, acted as if there was just a tone that came across as if I knew the answer. Well, the journey that we've been on, I've got much more questions now than I have answers. Mm. And, and so the cool thing is, is that I get to ask them here. And, uh, and that's what we're kind of going through. And I think the thing that I've had to do, Michaela, is, and it's a little bit of the root of what I read early on in your book is, is how do we define success? What is success, failure, those big words that we have in our society, in our culture, in our work environments, even in ministry and things like that? So talk about, and, and I know you go over, you don't have to give everything in the book, but talk about success and failure. Because for me, I've had to go, go through a big redefining of what that means. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's an honor to hear a glimpse of your personal story, Tim. And I will say as someone, this is our first time meeting you and I know that not everybody else does, but you um, just ooze wisdom and you ooze that kind of like hard earned um, yeah, wisdom. So, uh, you know, I experience you as somebody who's probably done a lot of inner work. So thank you for doing that and sharing it with others. And thank you for telling me a bit of your story. Yeah, I, I also I also love how you help you say like we're helping people redefine success because I think that there's just a lot of models that don't work. This is, goes back to our hustle over production. Like we've gone hard and fast and then realized that we just went hard and fast and we don't even know what day it is, right? Um, when I did the underlying research that led to this book, I asked um, a series of people four questions. How have you learned to define success? How have you learned to define failure? What practices have moved you towards success? And what practices have helped you deal with failure? 
really interestingly, there was a lot of contextualization needed for the definitions of success. So it wasn't, hey, there's, you know, we always thought it was this and then it's, we've all coalesced around this. There's a lot of context, right? And what's success at, um, you know, when you're a granddad might be very different than when you're 25 and to allow space and to assume that those definitions are going to change. One thing that was curious is uh, two more things there. The, also the people that I talked to, they were objectively successful in some way or another. And, you know, right. They were hitting basic metrics and, and some of them were, had, had built big things, others of them much smaller, but they were all less comfortable talking about success than about failure. They were like, you know, there's still like other things that I feel like I, we can achieve. And, and it wasn't false modesty. It was just a sense of being on the way. Right. But when I ask about failure, they're like, oh yeah, I'll tell you like 15 times things went, they went sideways and I'll tell you what we learned from them. And I wish I, what I wouldn't do again. And it was this, it was a relationship. It was their relationship with success and failure that drew me in. So again, they're probably people who had more questions and answers, but who weren't without the fruit that comes from, you know, focus and diligence and some of those kind of things. But the last thing I want to name here is that there was, there were some commonalities and those came up in the practices. So the commonalities came up in practices, even though there were different definitions of success and failure and core to the, um, everyone I talked to core to things, core to something that had helped them move toward this definition of success was practicing empathy. And not just like, oh, we're gonna have formal listening sessions and hear everything, you know, not like in a overly formulaic way, but in something I've come to recognize as practicing empathy along the way, right? I've got stories and we can go to scripture on this and open up a whole new thing. But what I'll just end here and say is, so while the definitions of success varied, comfort with success and failure and more comfort with failure than success was true. And then the, the practices, empathy of which was the first, though there are more that people shared, even though they were moving toward different definitions of success. Do, did, did everyone you interact with, would they consider themselves Christians, followers of Christ, people that has spiritual foundation, or did you also interact? Here, let me tell you why. I'll go ahead and cut yeah. through so you know where I'm going. To me, when we add our faith or spiritual aspect to it, it is, it's like throwing gas on this fire when we talk about work. You know, if you and I were going to have this conversation and we were going to remove, I've got my Bible open here to Jeremiah because you referenced that. And, uh, you know, if we were to remove all the spiritual and we'll talk about the word calling in just a moment and how it clouds this whole thing. If we were to remove all that, I think it's still a tough thing to converse about. What's success? What's failure? You know, how much money do you make? How much, what, what are your stuff? You know, what's your title? Things like that. But when we throw this whole thing of we were created to do something on this earth, it's like, woo. <laughs> right. I mean, am I, doesn't that just like mess us up even worse, Michaela? Yeah, I love the analogy of um, throwing gas on a fire because it certainly should be an anchor point, right? Should and be. It, and it, yeah, it should be. I think it's in, in our defense, in all of our defense, I think it's easy to lose that because it's like faith 
gets segmented to certain brackets, right? And and not and work is not usually one of them. And so when you meet people that are thinking and faithfully about their work, they've often been on their own journey. Um, and other people are like, oh, and they kind of light bulbs are going on. Uh, that, maybe that was even my own story. I'm like, well, I'm doing this, but I haven't actually parsed it out. Um, but, and, and this is this is where I then go to where that empathy on the way leads is I think so much of the, what we're called to do, what we're created to do plays out in the really daily small stuff. It's, you know, I had a student in a class just the other day, we were, we were talking about the same idea. And this is a student, she's 25. And she said, I feel like it's like a million little decisions stack up to be our actual response to God's calling much less than I've got this perfect career that God perfectly built me for, which some of that, some of the, the gift, I'm not like, you know, sort of stomping on giftedness and fit, but I'm like, yeah, a thousand little decisions that stack up to be that, that dance, that call and response relationship, which is why the, along the way stuff is so important. Um, and uh, this, I want to bring up the good Samaritan here. So when we talk about success, right? So you got this, this lawyer asking Jesus, like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Basically, what must I do to succeed in, in the kingdom of God? And Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan, tells the story of someone hurt on the side of the road, people who had all the answers again, off and kind of moving by, moving by, presumably already, you know, got somewhere to be. Then you got the Samaritan. And here's why I think it's so interesting. This is because he is already, he's presumably en route from some point A to some point B. They're on this traveling road, right? He's moving, he's in motion. Maybe he's even working. And yet he lets empathy interrupt him and he moves to the side of the road. And then he imagines what it might be like to join his way forward with this guy, to slow down his own journey, to use his resources for his sake, to can open, enter into an open-ended financial agreement that he could be exploited in with an innkeeper. And it's, it's, it's not just the being interrupted, but it's having, it's, it's being attuned to our environment and the thousand many decisions that build in us the kind of people that are sowing, that, that really are participating with God in the world. Um, so, uh, and I, I like that story because it's a big story and the, the Samaritan's doing this big thing, but also he's not, he's just noticing and using the resources he already has to help this person who's come into his path. Yeah, because kind of on the surface, you know, we would ask ourselves, why did Jesus share that story? Yeah. Well, uh, I'm of a belief, I'm guessing you are too, that there's not any mistakes that were placed in scripture. They're there for purpose and for reason. And, uh, and, I, and I love the value that that has. I, I, do, I, I know you talk a lot about calling yeah. in the scripture. and I mean, not in scripture, in your book. It is in scripture. <laughs> Maybe it's in scripture. Um, I went to Bible school for a couple years. I actually was, I met Jesus and became a follower of Christ, not through a church setting, but in a business setting, Michaela. So mm -hmm. my, some, my paradigm's a little bit different than folks. I actually have noticed that there's a little bit of, in, in we'll call it church world, a pecking order. That there is the thought, and this is related to work right here, okay? So I'm, this is like where we're cutting through a lot of sometimes ugly stuff in church world, that there's a pecking order and that if one is 
called, I'm doing air quotes for those that may not be able to see them, to be a pastor, you are near the top of that pecking order. An evangelist, you know, you're really near the top. Uh, you know, prophet and other things. Obviously, if you work full time in ministry, you're really close to the top. If you do business, you're a little bit down the pecking order. If you work in certain areas, if you do certain things, and then there's, I don't know, used car salesman or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> so, so talk to me. And so, so what it's caused, and I'll go ahead and and be a little bit vulnerable here. It's caused me to be a little bit um, cynical. Mm-hmm. about about especially in church world using the world word calling because i noticed when i was in a bible school setting and i was at a later age i was in my 50s that there were around 80 percent of the people sitting around waiting for their calling yep. <laughs> truthfully and so talk to us about calling and boy if you want to jump to jeremiah 29 11 which i know you referenced that would be cool because you kind of use that scripture to blow it out of the water a little bit so calling yeah i Thank you for teeing that up so vividly. I'm with you um, about that pecking order. There are deep roots of that pecking order um, that I think go all the way back to middle ages in Europe and what I would call the start of professional ministry, right? And what kind of Christian are we going to be? And so there's just a long lineage that carries a ton of baggage. And the thing that I appreciated about the vivid way that you set up is you illustrated how over and over again, we conflate the ideas of work and calling. Like those are not the same thing. Work and calling are not the same thing. It's just nowhere in the Bible does it say that calling equals paid work or this professional thing that we're gonna do. It's just, that's just not the case. Um, you know, in, in scripture, there's tons of stories of calling, right? But just sort of some common themes. And, you know, you may know this, Tim, but I like to think about calling kind of like a set of nesting dolls. It's helped me to have an image because I'm like, okay, if it's not equation, if it's not work equals calling or paid work equals calling, what is it then? And it's been helpful to picture a set of nesting dolls. And in that innermost core is a call to belong to Jesus. This is the follow me stuff. This is, you know, Matthew four um, disciples, like come and follow me. And, and that's an interesting case, even because they're leaving their nets, they're doing, they're leaving their one work to go to do something else, but follow me. Next layer out is the call to, and I've used this phrase a few times in our conversation today, participate in God's mission in the world, right? Um, you know, what does it look like to, actually be part of redemption and renewal and the good things we trust God is doing. That's like second Corinthians five, right? We're agents and ambassadors of this ministry of reconciliation. The next layer out is the call to create. So this is where I think you and I are just probably like lockstep. I don't know. You can shoot me out of the water if, if not Tim, but I believe everyone's called to be creative. I really do. And that there is just so much baggage that gets in the way of that. But our very first story about God in which God makes people in the image of God is one about creativity and where God says, be creative. And it's once you have those layers, so you have the call to just follow Jesus and all we do, then the call to participate in redemption, next layer out to be creative. Finally, the outermost layer of the nesting doll is the call to all the particulars place, people, 
sometimes roles and work and paid work, but far from exclusive. But then any of those locations become places where we're expressing all that's nested within for the sake of, you know, the community, the mission of God. So when we say, when we do this thing that we do, and just, this happens all the time, calling is this job or that job. We just miss all of that. We miss all of that goodness. And we, we sort people by, do you have a calling? Are you a professional Christian or not? And we don't ask in what ways does God's call to redemption play out in your work as a software analysis? We're not, it's a different question than, are you called to be a software analysis? It's like, Hey, how, where, do, where do you see opportunities to participate in redemption here? This is a very different way to look at it. So um, I spent a lot of my time breaking down some of these things and hearing the baggage that we've all got because of, because of this lineage. And I think we need to undo it. Um, yeah. So that's, that's just, I'll, I'll stop there. Well, the reason that is so good is because unless we discuss it more, I, I've seen people and this is seems harsh. I've seen people extremely damaged and they struggle more in church circles than they do in the secular world because of that, that language. We pluck scriptures out and we try to say you're called to certain things. And the only thing that really matters is professional. I love how you use professional ministry instead of full time. Um, I, I truthfully can't find a lot of examples of that in the Bible. I'm sure they're there. Maybe it's just me not looking right. But to me, it looks like people did work. And their ministry was kind of an overflow of that. Boy, I know, you know, I know there's people with, you know, pulling the rocks out of their pocketbooks now ready to stone me on that one. But, uh, but I see that so often and I see so much confusion with people, but I see secular people that don't wrestle with it because, you know, I'm just doing what I need to do. Those particulars, those day-to-day things. I'm going to add, there's, there's a word that I've used to maybe reconcile this. Mm -hmm. I did a long study on the kingdom of God and, Wanted to under, mm. I wanted to understand what he wanted me to seek first, <laughs> truthfully. Mm. So I've studied the kingdom of God for a few years, and then I moved to righteousness and all of those things to, to move away from those things at the end of Matthew 6, 33. And mm. Michaela, the word that I use that helps me is instead of using calling or what do I do and all that, I've used the word assignment. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just ask myself, what is my assignment? And I add to it today yep in God's kingdom because I think what happens with calling and you could share with some of the examples you've seen with calling people have this tendency to think well when I was three someone spoke a prophetic word over me and said I was going to be a great minister and in all of yep. the word of God and so I've been trying to do that all my life and I go boy how's that working out for you usually it's not working out well just my observation yep. And so it's permanent. So assignment to me is I've got my assignment right now is this, having this mm-hmm. conversation with Dr. Michaela, Michaela O'Donnell about work and what matters. And so how's that, is assignment, how does that fit? And does it fit in with the nesting dolls at all? That was a great example you gave in the book too. You give much more detail in there. I, I love the word assignment. I actually will use it sometimes too, not to mean exactly the same thing, but I think it's, I think it's really good because it's, and I would put it in that particulars, right? That's where that's where I would put it because it's still a reflection of all those things that are nested within. I like the word assignment because it there's just natural with the way we use the word in English. 
there's natural like beginnings and ends to that. And so immediately it says to us, well, assignments could be long-term or short-term. I could have more than one assignment at a time because that's the other thing that happens with calling. People are like, well, what's, what is my calling? Well, first of all, like God is caller and these are God's callings that we're responding to. Um, so I, I really like the word assignment. I'm not ready to throw out calling, um, mostly because I think that there's something that happens when we're compelled. Like, there's this like, we are compelled toward God, right? Now I'm picturing the disciples and Jesus says, follow me. And they're compelled. They're compelled to lay their nets down and walk step by step, though they don't know exactly where they're walking or exactly what they're doing. And there's a real followership in there. And I think at the heart of calling, we've made it a conversation about doing. And I think that doing is part of it. So it's particulars. I think calling is a conversation about being, right? Going all the way back to, we ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then as adults, what do you do? There's a belonging element, right? To, to follow Jesus is to belong to Jesus. So we're in this followership. And I think that the, so word I, a word I will sub in sometimes is this compelling nature. What are you compelled to do? I had, an, I had a person say to me one time, yeah, it's like the stuff that I just can't not do. I just like, like the phone gets louder and I've got to eventually answer it. And um, so, I, but I think it's good. I think it's good for us to use and play with multiple words, all with the hope of expanding imagination here, not limiting it. Yeah. And the, the thing that just kind of clicked with me while you were saying that, and, and I don't disagree with any of that. It's sometimes that we take this thing of calling and we try to make it a tactical item. I think you mentioned particulars and being an engineer and I work with leaders and executive teams and all, and we talk a lot about, are we working in tactical, which is kind of foundational to do items. Then we've got strategy, which is thinking a little farther ahead. And then there's purpose mission. And, you know, it keeps going up to what I consider at the top of that, which is what's your true identity. And I think sometimes what people try to do is they try to take what that calling is, which to me is sometimes up a little higher and they try to make it tactical. It's like day to day. And then there's one more thing that I think messes with people. I'm going to ask you about this. And I think it's, it's how time messes with us. Um, I've just like, we talked about earlier. I mean, I'm in Exodus and people read the story of Joseph and they have this, you know, we kind of use this. He went from the prison to the palace in 13 years or 11 years or something like that. You know, they, we kind of missed that part of how long it took, you know, Moses, he went from, you know, being a prince to, you know, setting his people free. There was 40 years in between there. (laughs) You referenced Jeremiah 29, 11, and we have, we plucked that scripture out of, you know, I've got plans for you. You know, the scripture right before that references that it'll take 70 years for this to come to fruition. How, how does time, how does the impatience of our culture and society and who we are play into why we're so challenged when it comes to work and calling? Yeah, I think that this is a really critical question, Tim. And I was thinking as you named it, I was like, oh, he's in like Genesis and Exodus. Of course, he's like reading about, of course, the characters. And we don't, we don't say, and then Abraham was an old, old man. It's all about the miracle that he was called when he was old. It's not about the fact that he had to wait around for decades and decades. Right. And so a couple things here. Um, 
I had this professor in college. I had to take Greek in college. I was really bad at Greek. It wasn't a, I just, it didn't click. It was, I just struggled my way through it. And I had to take two years of it. And the first, the first year, our prof, I had the same professor for both years. He was very good. It was not his fault that I wasn't doing well, but he would say, you know, Greek one is all root work and Greek two is all fruit work. And his point was, you're going to spend a whole year. You're going to spend 50% of the time that we're allotting toward this, not seeing really any fruit. You're just going to be doing root work. And that was obviously so different than anything I had ever heard before that stuck with me 20 years later. Right. Um, so the first thing is just building up accurate assumptions. And again, I'm going to go back to this research project we're doing right now. Uh, what does it mean to be healthy, faithful, and fruitful? One of the things that we're seeing is that, that people who really get this see time as an asset, not as a hindrance and, and are really playing the long game in this, um, a personal story. So my husband and I, when we, uh, for, it was right before we started our company, I was finishing up my last year of school and he was doing some film internships, uh, here in Los Angeles. And he was doing an internship with a well-known producer in town. And on the very first day in, he gets like, he got like little bits of this producer's time across his internship as part of like, you know, what they were giving back to him. Payment would be the strong word, but this guy was great. And this advice stuck with us. And he said, it's going to take you 10 years to get where you think you should be tomorrow. Not 10 years to become famous and like to have an Oscar and all these things, just 10 years to get where you think you should be tomorrow. And that felt like a punch in the gut at the time, especially to our 20 something year old self. Now, you know, looking at, looking around the corner at 40, I'm like, yeah, he was like actually spot on. And now I can, I can imagine all these things that feel like they're just, they're not, I can't get to them quickly, but to embrace my Greek professor's advice, it's like, actually like this root work is really worth it. And these seasons and they'll, it'll play itself out. And Tim, I don't know if that's really hard to do in terms of our instant gratification culture, or if that just requires maturity in it as people and maybe in the faith. I'm not sure, but there certainly seems to be a lot fighting our our acceptance of the pace that is actually the case in in our work and in the results that we'll see. Yeah, I think it plays into our expectations. I mean, I'm I'm 58 years old, so I've got some some years that I can look back on, and I think back to. Um, I started a business when I was in college. Thought we might make a go of it. Went to work corporate, and day two of corporate, I knew I needed to get out of there. So I spent the next nine years trying to get out of corporate. But I, but I think back on expectations. And then I also think there's this other layer that I want to bring up. And, and this kept, it kind of kept screaming out at me, not screaming. That's a, that's a harsh word. It kept whispering out of my spirit when I was reading through your book, Michaela. So I'm, I'm going to ask you about it and you can say, yeah, no, whatever. Um, I kept thinking to myself what the book would have been like had I written it as a baby boomer. All right. Mm. Because I am a, I, I, my wife and I are in this really interesting place. We're the tail end of baby boomer. And I think the generation behind us is generation X, I believe. And then there's millennials. I, I may have gotten those wrong, but I really observe part of the baked in tension and or conflict that we see in the world about work 
is a lot of expectations from generations. So, so I'm kind of layering things. You can kind of tell the way I like to process. We've got time. We've got the spiritual aspect. And then let's kind of layer on top of that the generational differences. Did, did I... Did I read some of that differently that I'm sitting here maybe as a, uh, a very pious uh, with my judgmental robes on reading through going, oh, well, well, they just needed to work hard for about 15, 20 years and not question anything and not worry about what's their purpose in life. Because I'm not sure my generation thought as much and I know definitely the generation before me didn't. They just worked. <laughs> so how does generations fit into this? Oh, I think it's an excellent question. And I think it's one that um, is at the heart of so many workplace dynamics too, and family dynamics, and, right? And, con- got- and conflict, and conflict. And con- Let's just go and, and say conflict. it causes. Yeah, it causes could people. It could cause people like me and you to go at it because yeah. this is the way I think. This is my paradigm. That's yours. So sorry to interrupt there. No, I think conflict is a good word. I'm glad that you interrupted there. Um, so context uh, and in even economic realities are one layer of this. Um, baby boomers by and large came of age, right? In an, in an era that was, this is their more well-worn past and this is kind of what you do and this is how it works. And um, I do think at some point the rug was pulled out from under the boomers um, and they had to, uh, y'all had to make peace with that. And that might've been as recently as the last 15 years. Then you have uh, Gen Xers and Millennials um, and now Gen Z. And it's kind of like, what do you, how do you do all that? And what are the expectations there? One of the curious things is that for the most part, boomers, boomers raised and raised millennials. And so you're like, well, like what, like where are those expectations coming from and how are they woven in? There's some, there's something happening there. Um, It is common that from generation to generation, we try to see like, what's better for our kids, right? I got small kids at this point, six and a three-year-old. And I'm already like, how do I help them think about things more integrated and better than I think about them, which is how my parents did. So we've got some of that. But then there's also, I really do think that there's unique things that each generation get to offer. So the millennial generation, we're, we're called the first like digital change native. Like we, we basically know digital technology. We're, we were born with it. We've never known a world without uh, widespread technological change. And that gives us something to offer. It gives us a certain space. Gen Z, I would say is unfortunately, I don't know, unfortunately, fortunately, probably gonna be the first generation to never know a world without widespread and disruptive changing chaos. And they're gonna lead us in the future. They're gonna like teach us, the rest of us who haven't, don't have built-in born muscles of resilience in the midst of change. They're going to teach us. And at the same time, these deeply formative ecosystems in which each generation, not to mention, which we should mention, drastic difference in socioeconomic locations and cultural realities, like we're formed by our ecosystems. And so there is just a ton that we bat up against each other and can and create those dynamics in, in many moments conflict. But I also think that's where the sweet the sweet stuff is. I think you know having those conversations, being able to work with the realizing why are we frustrated with our kids that their mentality is X, Y, and Z, and we had to do it this way, or why am I frustrated with my parents that they don't see that I should be charting my own way? Um, I think that that's a that that is some of where the most holy work is right now is the intergenerational um, 
work. So much less, how does one generation get on another generation's page and more, how do we bridge? How do in the workplace, in the home, in the church, right? Um, and the other places where this internet intergenerational stuff is in, in one way or another naturally playing out. Yeah. Um, all that's so cool, so good. I've got one more big question and then I want to ask you a little bit about the book as we wrap up, Michaela. But I will say this, and I want to acknowledge, I truly believe that I could have a conversation with you for about four to five hours and, and, and it would never get fatiguing or tiring for me, maybe for you, but I, because some of this stuff you could probably tell, I put some deep thought into it also, maybe not the research and all that you have. Mine is more experiential, but, uh, but I love this thought. Here's a big question. Yeah. Is it possible that we are attempting to make things better in a structure or system. I like to use references like the Babylonian system and the kingdom of God. So I'll just say, are we attempting to fix things in Babylon that are unfixable by making work better, by making us to where we could, you know, live at peace and rest while we're also generating the finances to take care of this or that? Are we attempting to fix the unfixable? Yeah, I, I think one of the brilliances and the difficulties of that question is we have no idea. It's very, very possibly, and maybe not. I mean, and does that does that change what we do today or tomorrow? As like people of God trying to take one step in front of the others, it's like, okay, do we burn it all down and start over and redo our systems and structures? In some ways, COVID just did a bit of that for us in some ways that we might not have gotten to without crisis. And so the, the difficulty is it would be hard for me to say, let's burn it all down because that usually comes in the back of like really tough stuff. And I don't know that I wish that upon all of us. Um, so, but can we make what we've got work? I think we, I, I know people who are Right, and I know I know sectors and places that are. I think conversations are rising to the top that have needed to rise to the top. This is where I go back to the generational thing. I think some of the expectations, air quotes, there that Gen Z comes in with that the rest of us are like, "How dare you?" I'm like, "Well, that actually might shape a better world for all of us." Like, I, who knows? And so, who knows if this system is redeemable? And, but as people that live in multiple kingdoms, we trust and believe that the kingdom of God is on an arc that bends towards justice and love and is moving toward redemption and renewal. So I don't want to say it doesn't matter what happens here, but we, we trust that whatever we sow into this system, whether we're burning it down or adding value back in counts in the kingdom of God. And so it's, it's worth doing. Yeah, that's good. I was actually the thing that popped in my mind is, is the 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 world that was when Jesus Christ walked. You know, they were in a extremely oppressive government situation. Obviously, we get a lot conflicted and about government and all that and what's happening. And so Jesus Christ, with his followers, walked in a time where there was a lot of oppression. There was slavery. There was just there was so many things that were horrible. And we would try to go, yeah, but things are worse. They've never been this bad. No, they probably have. They probably have been this bad, probably worse. I believe that one of the things you do with your book, Make Work Matter, is you give some glimpses of hope in there. What did you 
what were you hoping, what were you wanting to accomplish with the book? I don't think it was just a byproduct of your research. I, I really sensed that there was something you wanted to achieve with that. What was that? And then I've got a couple quick questions as we'll wrap, wrap up here. Yeah, there's certainly, um, I have hope and there is hope sown throughout. Uh, I mean, it's all the career advice I wish someone would have given me 15 years ago, not packaged as traditional career advice, right? And so in that way, it's a way to scale the many, many conversations I have with people where we're talking about these kind of things and to acknowledge and validate and honor what the process looks like and that it's not neat and shiny, it's not formulaic, and it often has a lot of feels involved. And because of that, that deep, deep work, you know, you said early on, I like to get to the deep parts. I, I feel like that's sacred space. And that's a place then that God is active, right? And I think God's active everywhere, but that's a place where we can explicitly feel that. And so the book is an invitation to do that, to sort of move from oh, all this, I don't know how to put any of this together to, wow, she just gave me some baby steps. But it turns out that when you stack up a bunch of baby steps, or as my wise student would say, a million small choices, that adds up to something um, upon reflection. And I had, and, and the, so there's a hope in the book that somebody else I was talking to just earlier today, she said, I feel like I'm in the season of wrestling. It's just such a wrestling. I've been wrestling for six months of what do I do, my work and this and that. And she said, I feel like the invitation is to stay there and not to try to rush past the wrestling. And I think that's the invitation of the book. And that's actually a very hopeful invitation. Stay there because there's something to be found. There's truth to be discovered. There's others on that journey. And the byproduct of that, to use a word we've used a couple of times, I know it's a very Christianese word, but I do think the byproduct of that is, is pretty fruitful. Yeah, that's good. I, I do want to say some people listening in might be going, okay, she's you know, has her doctorate, she's done research on this, it could be a very, uh, let's say, deep with data book. I, I <laughs> yeah. want to say how much I enjoyed the flow of what I've read. I think my Kindle says I'm about 70% into it right now. And so I just want to say it's a very, it takes a very meaty topic but there's a great lightness about the way you write. And as someone who's just written my first novel that will be published later this year, I, I can appreciate that writing style because when someone has the word doctor in front of their name, sometimes we go, ooh, could be tough. But don't let that deter you if you're listening in. Michaela, where can people find the book or find you or find more information or connect with yeah, you? What, what, whatever you'd like to share, we'll put it in the notes. Yeah, of course. Thanks for saying that about the book. It's certainly kind of, I'm a practical theologian. So it's, it's meant to be of that tone. So you can, why don't you just Google Depree Center, D-E-P-R-E-E, -E -E, um, Depree.org. You can find out about the book, about the rest of my work, about how this, some of the stuff lives in cohorts and classes and otherwise. I'm also on Instagram and LinkedIn and happy to connect with folks there. Excellent. We'll make sure we include all that. Michaela, we are Seek, Go Create, and I'm going to give you one of those words, not two or three, but one of them. You have to choose which one resonates with you currently. We won't say forever. We won't say it's a lifetime word for you. But currently, which one of those words, seek, go, or create, resonates with you and why? Yeah, my answer is going to be different than it was going to be an hour ago, which is interesting. Um, the one that's resonating with me is seek. Um, 
just that seeking the kingdom of God, right? To, to use the language that you used earlier, that remaining and abiding all the things I want to do and the projects I get excited about, but that really is um, critical and foundational. Um, so thanks. Thanks for helping me think about that today. Yes. Dr. Michaela O'Donnell, thank you so much for joining us. I thought that I would enjoy this conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I am expectant that you listening in enjoyed it also. Big favor for you. If anything we discussed touched you, made you excited, angry, anything like that, I'm going to ask you to do a big favor, and that is share this episode. Uh, whatever you're listening in, if you're on YouTube, if you're on your podcast player, there is almost guaranteed a place where you could share it. And I'm just going to ask you to share it. The best way that people get exposed to conversations like this on podcasts like ours and YouTube channels is when someone personally recommends it. I'm going to ask you as a favor to do that. I love this conversation and I know other people will also. So thank you for joining in. We've got new episodes every Monday. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be.